And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Art House Drive-In. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, If you didn't listen to the last episode, my name's T, and joining me today is my cousin Rob. Hey everybody. How how are are you doing? <laughs> uh, well, I'm doing I'm doing good. Um, I just started climbing again. Oh, I'm uh, so happy for you, man! It sounded like so much fun. I'm glad your foot is all uh, stitched back together and not falling off again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, doctors were not 100 percent sure if I should be doing it this weekend because it's only been two weeks. Uh, but you know, I wore a sock um, inside my climbing shoes, so in case anything did happen. Uh, the walls and the floors wouldn't be a problem, uh, but it was all good aside from me being rusty as shit. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait for the day when we trade our skills and you teach me climbing and I teach you Muay Thai. That's what I. That's what I dream of. Mm-hmm. Then we'll be the the perfect fighting machine, able to <laughs> yeah. scale buildings and fight crime. Yeah, scale buildings and then go into windows and fight uh, ninjas with Muay Thai. That'll mm-hmm. be our. That'll be our arc. I will have come full. Well, I would say full circle, but that would require us to be beating up ninjas as babies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's that's our true arc. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so anyway, um, in case you guys didn't listen to the last episode, the film that we're going to be going over today is *The Thief and the Cobbler* by yes. Richard Williams. And I chose this film because it is it is sort of the transitional fossil of of me studying film and studying animation um going from the sort of narrative obsessed uh disney and pixar and dreamworks and even though i love them studio ghibli and i like all that stuff i'm not hating on that stuff but um this is the film that got me out of the rut of only seeing animation as a repository for narrative um and thinking about animation as a craft um so getting to experimental animators like Susan Pitt or um, more recently like Chris Sullivan or Janie Geyser or back in the day like Oscar Fischinger or Norman, Norman McLaren, all of these people who really only cared about creating the best animation that they could and they didn't care about narrative really at all mm-hmm. in that way. Yep. Can safely yeah. say that, I, that this film falls into that category. Yeah, and this film is not going to be like La Jetée where the first time I saw La Jetée I fell in love and from there I just keep falling more and more madly in love. Like this is a complicated film with a complicated history um and it is not all good. Is no, what I, I will say it is <laughs> no, not I, all positive. As I was watching this, I was I was like I I know that there are things in here that I like, but man are there more that I don't. Yeah, so uh representation-wise, not good. 
um, a lot of the no. character designs not great. Um, there's <laughs> problematic. Some of, you know, problematic. There's that's the good word. There's a lot of problematic stuff in this film, but it is a very important film for understanding animation history um, and also understanding Richard Williams because he is a giant of animation history. And um, so my background with the film briefly, uh, I worked as a busser at a hot pot restaurant named Shabu Zen in Boston when I was in college in my, or undergrad, I should say. If you live and, around um, that area, definitely check it out. Uh, I love that. It was home for me for three years. Um, I loved it. And uh, every six months you'd get sort of a new batch of people working there. Like a lot of people, some people would stay, but I, at the end of three years, I was like a grizzled veteran of Shabu. And um, you could hold uh, a hot my, pot with his bare hands. <laughs> yeah. And in my second year, um, one of the new bussers was actually an animator named Cameron Grant. Uh, if you're listening, uh, I love you, man. You're, you're great. You really turned me on to some great stuff. Um, he interned for Adult Swim, and um, I don't know what he's doing now, but check him out. He's an amazing artist. And uh, he knew that I was sort of getting into avant-garde and experimental stuff, and he's like, well, if you want some really out-there animation, um, check this out, this incomplete um, masterpiece. And uh, because I know a lot of animation teachers sort of use it to teach about animation history and technique and things like that. Um, and immediately when I saw it, it was just I had never seen anything like it before. And it really, you know, sparked me on this journey to get to um, the Susan Pitts of, of the world. So that's my background with it um, and my obsession with it. And it's changed a lot over the years as, as I've been more critical of it hmm. and also more critical of Richard Williams and not just sort of. Um, fanboying out uh, dogmatically. Mm -hmm. So um, what was your initial reaction, T? Uh, So admittedly, I was not exactly sure when this film came out. And so from the very beginning, the thing that was bothering me the most was I couldn't tell which came first, this or Aladdin. I have later learned that Aladdin came after and 100% ripped them off. Um, So fuck you, Disney, I guess. Uh, but as far as the animation went, like even from the very beginning with the, with the crystal ball, um, and the Mm -hmm. first time you see zigzag walking up, like I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Like it did not look Mm -hmm. like something that was like hand drawn animation to me. Um, Mm -hmm. story wise, can't say (laughs) I loved it. Um, I, I definitely like. Ch- unlike La Jete, which kind of felt like it flew by and I wanted to go back and rewatch it and I did go mm-hmm. back and rewatch it I don't think I'd want to rewatch this one just yet mm-hmm. um, Yeah, there were a lot of parts that felt like they kind of went on forever um, mm-hmm. even if the animation was beautiful I just uh, some of them I, I kind of like checked the time I was like okay how much longer is left on this thing right yeah um, and that's sort of a byproduct of Richard Williams as a person mm-hmm. as well yeah, which we will get to. Yeah, but, but um, all, I'm, I'm, all in I'm, all, yeah. I'd say, if you're just looking at the medium, fucking stupendous. Like, I loved mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah. If you if you ask me about the story, I could have taken or left it. Yeah, so this is... I'm glad you've had this reaction as well because this is sort of an important part of film studies or um, understanding cinema in general is that um, you have to look at something like this holistically. You cannot just say that oh the animation's wonderful and ignore the offensive character designs of uh, the black characters in the film or yum yum Mm -hmm. or even the thief especially the thief (laughs) or the old woman like there's a lot of issues with this film in regards to representation 
Um, and you cannot just go pretty colors, wonderful motion. Um, this film was made for animators, but um, as a as a wannabe film scholar, I guess I am a film scholar at this point. Mm-hmm. F you guys. <laughs> uh, you need to look at this film as a as a portrait, as a holistic portrait, and not um, the way you would want it to be. I should say, if it was remade, I'd change a lot. If I was a part of like the creative consultant team that remade this film, there would be a lot of changes that I would make, and I would keep a lot of it as well. But um, there's some stuff that's just not okay. Yeah. So. Now I think we're going to get into the history of the film because I think 50% of understanding this film is the history, which is not usually how I look at cinema. I, I like to, I love to look at films in a vacuum, but with this film, it is really important to understand the background and why people are obsessed with this film. So mm-hmm. it really began in the early 60s. And I want to give props to Persistence of Vision, the documentary, the 2012 documentary directed by Kevin Schreck, because he compiled a lot of the information um, that I have and that everyone has. Uh, and it's a great documentary, so you should check it out. It's on Vimeo, I believe. It's, um, it's wild that there's so much history just about the creation of this film. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. So let's begin my Dragon Ball Z abridged history of The Thief and the Cobbler starting back in the early 1960s when Richard Williams was hired to illustrate the exploits of the incomparable Mullah Nasruddin, which was translated by Idris Shah, which uh, surrounds a 13th century sort of philosopher and the parables associated with him. Um, Richard Williams was so enchanted with the stories that he wanted to adapt them for a feature film. So Omar Ali Shah, uh, Idris Shah's brother, became a producer on the project, and the Richard Williams studio in London began working on Nasruddin in 1968. So this is the beginning of the Nasruddin era. So the project was largely self-financed by the studio's advertising work and later on by films like 1971's Oscar-winning A Christmas Carol, which I implore you all to watch. It's, it's incredible. So the big first event was Williams hiring Ken Harris as the chief animator on the project, who worked for decades with Hanna-Barbera and Chuck Jones, um, oh, had a hand okay, in creating cool. you know, iconic characters like Wile E. Coyote, the Roadrunner, Yogi Bear, Pepe Le Pew. So he had a hand in sort of passing down Ken Harris's knowledge of decades and decades to the young animators who were working at the studio, um, and so many animators came in and out, so it was really sort of proliferation of knowledge. Um, Williams got so far as to be able to screen three hours worth of Nazardin, which is so much animation. Wait, wait. Th- so before this finished product, there were three out. There was three hours of am- animation that just didn't make the cut. Three hours of animation that he had um, at nineteen seventy-two, oh which is like way, way too much, buddy. And was um, that how long feature films were back then? <laughs> no, not God at all. Damn. And. Um, and there was a falling out between Shaw and Williams um, about the project's bookkeeper, partly, I, I believe. And, you know, rumors of embezzlement or maybe the bookkeeper just didn't keep track of the finances. So the Shaw family left the project and took all of the rights of the story with them. And Williams could only keep one character that he himself created, which was the thief. And later on, he would create the character, the cobbler, um, also known as, you know, Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton, because that's who the cobbler is. So, so this whole new film that they're making was... Just based off of one character. 
So based off of one character from a completely different story, and they had to create a whole new script, a whole new story. They had to really start from scratch. Yeah, it's a good thing and, they didn't um, spend a lot of time working on that other, on the other three hours. Yeah, it's a good thing they didn't spend you know three hours of animation time, which is you know who knows how many hours of time took to make that like a jillion. Let's let's estimate a jillion to a zillion hours of animation. Yeah, one of, of time. it's definitely somewhere in between the two. Hours of labor. Yeah, if if you're not like very familiar with animation as well like making animation three hours of animation is absurd especially like, by is hand odd. especially by hand 2d animation by hand like three hours is ridiculous so the work on the thief would start in 1973 williams focused primarily on commercial projects at this time because the the studio's finances were drained from years of working on nazardin uh but they would be working on it in the background sort of constantly. Um, and in, also in 1973, Art Babbitt would come on as a veteran animator for the studio. Um, Art Babbitt was known for you know working with Disney for years and years. He worked on Snow White and Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo. Um, he designed the mushroom dance sequence in Fantasia and Penn Designs um, behind the Wicked Queen in Snow White. So he's a very famous animator. Disney actually has you know a collection of his animation in the research library, um, I believe. And Babbitt would actually create a lecture series during 1973 for all of the animators at the studio. So they had to, they had to com- complete assignments every day on top of their regular work. And it was a way for Babbitt to sort of pass down his knowledge to this new generation of animators, but also, you know, to up the level of skill for the project because he thought it was, The Thief was so important. And Greg Duffel, who was an animator um, from 1973 to 74 at the studio, said uh, that Art Babbitt thought that Dick... Richard Williams was was saving the art that it was falling into an abyss, you know, about an, saving animation. That he was the savior of animation, um, which is you know very dramatic. But uh, that's how everyone thought of this project back then. That was so important to them, and they were so passionate about it. In 1978, Williams and his crew began working on 10-minute battle sequence um, for the thief to try and entice Mohammed bin Faisal al-Suad, um, uh, who was willing to fund a $100,000 10-minute uh, test sequence for the film. So, Greg Duffel had this to say about the sequence uh, that is just incredible to look at. It looks like people died making it. Um, even people who know a lot about animation, you would look at it and go, you know, how did they do that? It's incredible. It's so detailed and so masterful. Um, but Williams went over time and over budget, and he spent $250,000 of the $100,000 that he was supposed to use for the sequence. And even though Suad was impressed with the project, um, he backed out in 1979 because because he didn't want to work with someone who couldn't, you know, stay on time and budget. Yeah, that was one of the scenes that I was watching, and I was like, this really could have been, like, two minutes. Like, it was beautiful. The animation was gorgeous, but I was sitting there just waiting for it to be over. And there are other sort of events that happen between this um, and the next big event, um, like showing Milk Call, a 20-minute sample reel, and some other people getting a little bit of money here and there. But um, the next big event is Richard Williams being hired on Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1987. So, uh, Who From Roger Rabbit, if you haven't seen it, is a gigantic smash hit, and it's also a, a sort of time capsule of animation history of the style of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Oh, yeah. One, one of my favorite films from my childhood. And Richard Williams was able to do this because he sort of mastered those styles um, by working with Ken Harris and Art Babbitt. And it's sort of this film that you can look at and, and go, oh, that's what animation looked at for looked like for you know almost 30 years. So it, it's sort of an historical movie as well. Um, so because of this smash hit, Disney decided to help distribute The Thief, and Warner Brothers would put up the money for Williams to resume work on the film in 1989. 
The production was plagued by issues, of course. Um, the executives at Warner were worried for a number of reasons. Um, the two main characters are mute. Uh, he hired unknown composers on the film. There were no musical numbers like traditional you know, animated films at the time. There was no traditional storyboarding process. He wasn't keeping on script and on and on and on. Um, and, and Williams would keep reanimating sequences. He would make them too long. He just, you know, he was really just focused on the craft of animation, not on narrative or anything like that. So, you know, that's what they wanted. They wanted a film that was, you know, marketable and sellable and not this just like, you know, sort of experiment in animation technique for, you know, two hours. Um, so... In 1991, while they were working on the project, Disney's Aladdin would start production. And the controversy there is that the designs for Jafar and Genie and Sultan and Jasmine were all rumored to just been, you know, plucked from the Thief's designs, um, which is sort of inarguable at this point. It's just true. And Philip Pepper, who is a lead animator on The Thief from 1990-92, says that uh, we were very aware that they ripped us off. Um, just have to acknowledge that it's a form of flattery. And, and because so many animators passed through these through Richard Williams Studios over the years, um, it was just sort of inevitable that these designs would get out, um, I guess, if you want to defend Disney. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, 1992, Warner Brothers would, would tank the project and, and give all the rights to the film to the Completion Bond Company and Fred Calvert to finish without any input from Williams. Um, this led to the release of two different films re-edited from the Williams' work, The Princess and the Cobbler, 1993, and Arabian Night, 1995. And both of those I've heard only bad things about, so if you want to, you know, go watch them at your own peril, but I will never watch them ever. Um, and after this, you know, nightmare of a production process, uh, Richard Williams would go on to have even more success as a, as a teacher and, and sort of um, still making films like Circus Drawings in 2010 and, and Prologue in 2015. Circus Drawings is incredible. Um, I implore you all to go watch it. It's on YouTube for free. And uh, The Thief wouldn't really be revived until 2006 when an archivist and filmmaker, Garrett Gilchrist, um, would sort of cobble together, no pun intended, <laughs> of the existing material from The Thief and the Cobbler and, and, and into one rough cut. And, and sort of there were still 15 minutes of animation left to do. So in those 15 minutes, he would put in um, concept art and test animation, whatever, to sort of fill the block of those times. And you can go watch that on the Thief Archive YouTube channel free of charge, just for free. And uh, he's actually made four versions. So the last version was made in 2013. And it's great. You, you all should watch it. Um, other than that, there's a work print that exists called The Thief and the Cobbler Moment in Time um, that was screened a few times. It was screened in 2013 at Samuel Goldwyn Theater and twice at the BFI. Um, and, and sort of all of William's work has been archived and digitally duplicated by the Academy. And um, it exists at Disney's Animation Research Library, but we don't have access to that. So we watch it on YouTube for free. And unfortunately, Richard Williams died in August 2019, so he never got to see the film fully finished. But, you know, hopefully one day someone will take up the task. And every, if anyone wants uh, um, me to be on the creative consultant team for that film, uh, just, you know, hit me up because that would be incredible. So that's that's the end of my history. Um, I'm I'm tired of talking about it. It's long, and there's stuff <laughs> you, and there's stuff I left out. So you can go look it up. Uh, yeah, for, really from to. the brief amount that like I've learned talking to you uh, off camera, and and doing a little bit of my own research, I I've never heard of a film that has had so many ups and downs, and mostly downs. And there's a lot that I left out. So just go look it up for yourself. You know what I mean? But uh, so now, T, please give me your synopsis of the film. So we can end this pedantic monologue. All right. So synopsis time. I am going to boil this almost two hour length film into, I'm hoping, 
Like a minute, minute and a half tops. All right, go. You've got a thief. You got a cobbler. The thief doesn't have a name. The cobbler's name is Tack. You also have Zigzag, Grand Vizier. He's got big floppy shoes. Uh, because uh, this cobbler is already pissing off Zigzag, he gets uh, th- th- dragged up to the to the king to be sentenced to death or arrested. I don't fucking know. There is a king. His name's King Nod. Uh, you also see the princess. Princess fucking yum yum. Um, she falls in love with the cobbler, love at first sight, and this pisses off Zigzag. He wants to marry the princess. Um, the thief is still around. He's stealing shit. He wants to steal these three golden balls, which protect the kingdom. Um, and once again, the cobbler is arrested because of, uh, the thief stealing the princess's shoe. Leads to a chase sequence. It's hard to explain. Anyway, um, the balls are stolen by the thief, the kingdom's in danger of this one-eyed army invasion, and Zigzag jumps ship after taking the balls to the enemy. The king is freaking out. He tells the cobbler and the princess, go find a fucking witch. Um, <laughs> they travel across the desert. They find this witch. The magic was in the cobbler all along. Uh, <laughs> so they go and fight the army. Um, they, like, throw attack at it. Starts off this Rube Goldberg machine of doom. Where this one-eyed army and their majestic crab mobile fortress, this steampunk <laughs> masterpiece, all falls apart because of one tiny thing. Um, the thief is inside this collapsing building still trying to steal the falls. Um, and, you know, then Zigzag gets eaten by his own bird happily ever after. Um, I don't know how that could possibly be clear. Yeah, so if if the synopsis sounds confusing, it's because that's how it is. You know what I mean? Like, that's the film is so. It, like, Richard Williams was so. He just didn't care about narrative at all. Like, I'm sorry. He didn't stick to the script. The whole point yeah. of the synopsis is that it's unscripted, but as I'm thinking about this <laughs> film, I'm just like, it's like my brain yeah. was fried. It makes no sense. And, and all Richard Williams cared about was the animation. So, like, immediately, the narrative just means nothing and it's ridiculous. Um, and I mean, before we go into the good parts of the animation, uh, uh, what are your critiques as well? Because I think it's important to also talk about the critiques before we go, ah, oh, beautiful animation, pretty colors. I mean, yeah. as far as the critiques go, I think it's what kind of what we've like referenced before. Um, for for one, the thief looked like he was wearing a yarmulke and had <laughs> had a big nose and just yeah. like this dirty character. And I was kind of like, off, right off the bat, I was like, Am I reading too much into this, or is this actually offensive? Um, it's vaguely offensive, I believe. Um, I wasn't as wild about the soundtrack for this one. Uh, would mm. be my other one, but no. Um, no, my my main critique was just the story. Um, I I just couldn't really get behind it, get interested in it, and I was mm. just watching it for for the cool animation sequences. Yeah, so this is a good transition into um, for the analysis portion of the day to really sort of go into why um, specifically the animation is interesting, not just saying that the animation is interesting. So, so let's start mm-hmm. with uh, transformation and motion, and um, this being a really important part of the film is apparent in the first seconds of the film. Uh, there's this opening of a crystal ball. 
that slowly comes closer and closer oh, yeah. to, the, to the screen. Yeah, and like the hands moving around it yeah, and clouds yeah. uh, taking different shapes in yeah, there. Yeah, and there's there's these sort of clouds boiling and together and, and, and overlapping and the clouds turn into sand and the sand turns into a sand dune and this beautiful sort of tornado effect and then it turns into mm-hmm. stars and then it turns into the Golden City and it sort of shows how uh, liquid animation is in regards to transformation that forms can sort yeah. of just blend together um really seamlessly like it's difficult to do but when it's done well it looks so um satisfying um mm-hmm. and it it truly did not look like someone just did a flipbook animation sketch of that it was it was beautiful mm-hmm. it was slick like silk gorgeous um unrelated were the hands supposed to look like zigzag hands? I think about that all the time. I'm not sure if those hands are added on by Garrett Kilchrist afterwards or if those are the real hands from the film because they don't look like the same art style as the rest of the film. So I, I, no, yeah. no, right? I, I didn't think so. They look very added on, so I think they might have been added on. But, um... Okay. Yeah. Well, the world may never know, yeah. but I was just... I was interested. Yeah. Sorry about that. And, and in the second part of the film or in the middle of the film there's another sequence that is really sort of telling where the thief walks into yum yum's bed chamber as it <gasps> were and she just went to sleep after destroying all of her shoes so she would have a reason to see the cobbler <laughs> wait really I didn't <laughs> yeah that part. yeah and she sort of lays down to go to sleep and puts her shoes next to her and the thief walks on the bed and uh, as he takes the shoes and is trying to make his escape the bed starts to rumble and this gigantic wolf head turns its it turns and looks at the thief from the edge of the bed and it's sort of revealed through this really interesting transformation that the bed is actually made of living white wolves and uh you know at at this exact moment um in the film while i was watching it the first time i was literally thinking like okay so this is aladdin I mean, it's a shame I didn't decide to give Yum Yum a tiger or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if that's where the. Ti- I've never thought of that. I wonder if that's where the tiger came from. I wouldn't be surprised. I would. That's interesting. I would think, or maybe it's just it's Disney and they need to have an animal companion. That's also true. But good catch. That was a good catch. It's better for marketing. Yeah, and and the, sort of the third part, uh, or the third sequence of note in regards to transformation, I think, is um when Zigzag does this sort of. Um, magician performance in the camp of the one eye um, near the end of the film it's like a like a David Blaine sort of performance and um, he throughout it he throws these balls of fire everywhere and they sort of fill the frame and they go from just like a firework to transforming into claws that sort of clutch at the air as they as they careen around the frame, it's so beautiful and sort well, of luminous. Well, of course, he he's a beast master. <laughs> yeah, and he, there's a there's a moment too where he says like a uh, uh, charm beasts and uh, a dragon sort of unfolds on its hands and it bites its own tail and then and light and gets lit on fire like lights itself oh, on so fire. Cool. It's so it's just a uh, it's so seamless and 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 satisfying to watch. Um, so that's really like to me. Those are the key moments of transformation. They're littered all over the film, but uh, Richard Williams really wants to tell you that uh, this sort of seamlessness of form of transformation is sort of really important to him um, and his style. And um, it also seemed like he was probably. No, I'm not saying to show off his 
art form but to show people hey this is all the stuff you can do in 2d hand-drawn animation like Definitely. it's not limiting in the slightest Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. And and sort of the next part that I want to get to as well is is color and shape because the color in this film is just incredibly vivid and it's set within these geometric patterns that are clearly inspired by um like sacred geometry, like um mm-hmm. like you'd see on Alhambra or, or or something like that and 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 these vivid colors um sort of change as well throughout the film like when you're in the golden city it's like very bright and vivid in the in like the minarets but when mm-hmm. zigzag is traveling from the golden city to the one-eyed camp the background is like surrealist um and it looks like it's melting and all the colors are sort of dark and like diseased looking well at the same time i think i think that that's also just because of where the story was heading yeah. um as soon as war was mentioned uh that's when you see storm clouds on the horizon yeah. and you can kind of tell that uh, the plot is headed towards conflict. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like that entire, that entire, I would say, back quarter, back third maybe of the movie had a much darker tone to it. I would argue even when it switched over to Yum Yum and the cobbler in the desert, it seemed a little more muted. Yeah, and the red during the battle sequence. Like everything is sort of dyed mm-hmm. In this incredibly bright red um, from, I guess, the fires of the crab steampunk monster. The steampunk crab monster <laughs> yeah. MVP of the entire movie. But yes. that red is uh, is incredible. It sort of jumps out at you in the frame, and it makes everything have this like crazy energy to it. It looks like it's all um, like very hot. You know what I mean? When someone, like metal is yeah. lit in that way in like a factory or something like that it looks like every sort of surface is like that yeah yeah something like or like in a blacksmith's forge in some mm, fantasy role-playing precisely. game yeah sorry i've just got i, I stole a fantasy on the brain <laughs> yeah sorry and even in color the sort of the black and white sequences are also um contribute to the sort of the optical illusions of the film so he's even using sort of the like the contrasting colors of black and white um, in the chase sequence, which we'll talk about in a second, to contribute to sort of the mind-bending presentation of his film. So I think he's using colors in a lot of different ways throughout the presentation. Absolutely. Um, but as far as the shapes you're going over in the beginning, uh, something that also I thought was very interesting was just how he had the foreground and the background interact, yeah. where the background would be these just this array of different shapes, probably these sacred shapes you were mentioning, but I just didn't pick up on. Whereas everything would be moving past it in the foreground, and it created this really just trippy visual effect that I, I really loved. Yeah, the foreground seems to sort of bend towards the background. Like, they're like yeah. usually, especially in animation, because the backgrounds are separate in animation from the foreground, literally physically, when you're making them that's why like, oh actually well like old disney films you see the background they're like these beautiful painted um uh watercolor backgrounds and the animation in the foreground is on a different layer so animation is sort of a, a i never put those two together yeah well that's really cool thank yeah, you yeah and so that's where like cell animation comes in so you layer cells like on top of each other there's like so many different layers of animation and if you still make animation today like in the animation course i took at bu um, if you use a, a like a software, um, it'll be different layers of animation. So you'll be working on layer one, mm. and then you'll go to layer two, layer three, layer four, blah, and so on. Okay, so, which is cool. All right. 
Um, and the next thing that I think is important in understanding, which we already sort of talked about, is, is space and perspective. But I want to go through the, the chase sequence sort of beat by beat um, to talk yes. about this. So when the thief uh, steals Yum Yum's shoe in the beginning and the cobbler is like, hey, man, that's my that's my lady. That's my booze shoe. <laughs> and he's like, give me it back. And he's chasing after him. It starts um, where they're running through this like featureless checkerboard and their character designs start off very, very tiny. And as they come towards the camera, they get bigger and bigger in this like forced perspective. And it looks like they're sort of filling up the room at like Willy Wonka. You know, yes. when they go through like the yeah. little door in Willy Wonka or something, that's what it looks like. But it's it's so quick. What, it, it's, you're just like, oh, what it God. was reminding me of uh, was I'm not sure if you remember this, but growing up the original Teen Titans cartoon yeah. before yeah. Teen Titans Go was even a thought in someone's head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a villain called Mad Bod, and every time there was a chasing involving him, it also used these forced perspective techniques mm -hmm. um, and just had them running around this psychedelic Scooby-Doo-esque chase scene. Yeah. Um, and that, that's just immediately what came to mind for this. Yeah. I, I like to think that they were inspired by something like this for the Mad Mod sequence. I think they must have. That was an amazing it's, show. It seems like a lot of, a lot of people who actually do animation were inspired by it so me just being like oh that's funny it reminds me of this like well no shit sherlock that's the point i i want to say that the original teen titans is underrated but i feel like our generation loves it so much that it is like properly rated you know what i mean there's probably a uh like a bias on our front yeah for that it's an incredible i loved that show so much and then yeah uh, that could be another topic <laughs> yeah and then when the thief the thief uh hides behind a pillar which is just a, a, a black rectangle. It doesn't really look like a pillar. And Tack is sort of forced to stop mid-sprint, and his character stays in the center of the frame and doesn't really move. And you can only sort of tell about the forces of inertia that are working on his body by the background shapes that are, like, whirling in place and revolving really quickly. Like, that's such a clever way to talk about, like, physics, even. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't have to make physics affect even my character. I can use the background to show you know what is happening to the character like like force the force that's working against him which is so interesting right no but i i thought it was really cool how they just flipped all the laws of physics and animation on its head for this one sequence yeah and well, and a couple sequences but this was the one that jumped out and then they run into like uh into this this hallway that is all black and white checkerboards and and it sort of blurs by the frame and it becomes this like deep end of a swimming pool really quickly where where tack like hits the wall in front of him oh yeah and the thief and the thief sort of runs around and through the doorway um and tack like slams his face into it so like like depth it, it like so swiftly um smashes tack in the nose sort of thing well, you know, they brought that back when uh zigzag had stolen the golden balls and was uh escaping the tower and tack was walking the same way they brought back that black checkerboard thing and where on one square zigzag walked down into a hallway uh tack used that i think it was the same one yeah. to walk up yeah. but it, it was also using this forced perspective and black checkerboard thing to create a different visual effect it looks like an mc escher painting if people a bit yeah, yeah. yeah like that's so i think that sequence is very sort of influenced by like those like optical illusion painters or or like sort of surreal 
artisans artisans and and that sequence is 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 famous and it is clipped on youtube everywhere um i mean it's just it's so eye-catching you know what i mean and optical illusions you know they they look cool and and sort of the next topic that we'll talk about is the character designs but i really want to spend time on zigzag as a character and i don't think i've said this before he's he's voiced by vincent price who's a very famous actor really and uh oh he kills it should have known that he kills it it's amazing Uh, i'm not sure i know you don't like horror movies but an old one if i get to pick one one of these days that i want to check out is i think it's haunted house on horror hill it's super old i remember watching it as a kid because i love cheesy old movies um but vincent it was a vincent price movie and i loved it i'm i'm down to watch horror movies i'm just a scaredy cat so I get scared. I get scared from like horror trailers that I see online. So that's my cross to bear. So I'm just like, all right. Yeah. So no Dead by Daylight for you, but maybe like we'll we'll watch it in like a brightly lit room. Please, yeah. And and so <laughs> Zigzag, his character design is very strange because Richard Richard Williams wanted to make him as expressive as possible. So he actually has extra um, digits or not digits, extra joints on his fingers. Um, to make his hands more sort of flamboyant. He has extra shoulders. Uh, Richard Williams said he's maybe got two asses. and The world may never know. Yeah, and he, uh, the, yeah. They were too afraid to show us in the film. <laughs> and, and Richard Williams said he wanted to make him like a marionette because he manipulates all of the people around him so he himself should move um, like a puppet, which is really cool. It's like, you know... It's sort of almost embedding storytelling into like the bones of a character design or the foundation of the design. It's really interesting to me. And it's very apparent in um, that magician sequence and in, in the one I camp when he does card manipulation because he like he puts his hands together and his, and his fingers gleam towards the camera and they look so long oh, and yes. spindly. And you're like, is there an extra joint on his finger? Like, they don't look like human yeah, perfect, hands. Perfect for dexterous card maneuvers. Yeah, and when he's manipulating the cards, it looks incredible, but it also looks so, like, uncanny. Like, a human can't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely giving you a hint of the supernatural Yeah. in the scene where he's supposed to be quite supernatural. Yeah, and and this way, this way of, like, telling the story of a character through design is sort of, I'm um, in the thief as well with this kleptomania like you don't know that he's mm. sort of skinny as a rail because his cloak is revealed to just have so much stolen shit in it so much like trinkets and jewels right and stuff. i think it's it's only when he is it when he's like falling out of the gutter and like keeps going through those clotheslines that you end up seeing uh his cloak get like pulled up past his body i think it's there i it also reminds me of when the the nanny beats the shit out of him and oh, all the yeah. stuff is flying out of his cloak but you don't actually get to see how skinny he is. Like I, I always think about when he falls out of the sky after the witch sequence, um, and his, oh, yeah. he has to get the trash bag for his new cloak. Just goes into the trash can and <laughs> takes a trash bag and wear it. Um, but he looks like he, skinny is around. You wouldn't really guess that because he looks like obese from uh, all the stuff. And this, and the same thing extends to the cobbler too. His movements are just so lithe and and smooth and silky not, yeah you know. as, as if to make him a direct foil to zigzag anymore yeah, yeah. and even when i the, mean I, I guess you could also argue that because zigzag spends almost the entire thing talking uh speaking in rhymes and generally being the narration of the story in a lot of regards yeah. uh whereas tack is mute 
for the most part. Yeah, completely agree. And and outside of the character designs, I really wanted to talk about sort of the detail and labor that went into this film, because um, one of the most telling thing, or the one of the things I remember uh, Cameron Grant saying to me, the animator I mentioned when he first mm-hmm. talked to me about the film, is that um, you shouldn't think of this film in the way that oh, with modern technology. Uh, it would just make this all easier and it would just be one, two, s- skip-a-roo and we can make this film. Like, no. The, Cobble my shoe. The t- detail and labor of this is sort of transcends eras of animation technology. Like, it would still take a ton of money and a ton of time and labor to to make a film this detailed, which is interesting because mm-hmm. it's usually, like, in film, it's like, oh, now we have digital film. It makes everything so much easier. In this instance, it it's not just the technology that makes it difficult. It's like the craft, which is cool. Yeah, it's it's still obviously a lot of time and hard work and patience and attention to detail that all culminated in this. Like, you couldn't just run this through a computer and say, make it look silky smooth and snappy and sexy as hell. And and you can see that from even the very beginning. Like I love that. Um, do you remember the fountain in the beginning of the film? Uh, it's o- yeah, it's only yeah. yeah it's only on screen for like a couple of seconds, but it is so beautiful and it's so detailed. Like it looks like you could see like individual water drops. Yeah, it's incredible. Like the individual waves in the water as the as the mm-hmm. water hits the the bottom of the fountain and all of the the statues around the fountain are so ornate, and you're just like you didn't have to make this like three it's like a 10 second shot or something you didn't have to make this mm-hmm. so detailed but i think that was I mean, his you his also mindset. have the the flies that are just constantly buzzing around uh around the yeah. thief i i in yeah. every scene he's in i didn't think about that until the last time i watched it and was like those flies are really keeping up with the thief like yeah you know. yeah so i i think those are all probably just hand drawn in different positions too so that's a level of detail that just goes through the entire film, which is yeah. wild to even think about. Yeah, and and this is what Richard Williams had to say about you know the medium too, because he played jazz. He, he played jazz music. I believe he played mm-hmm. the clarinet, if I remember correctly. But he compared. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, he compared it differently to a jazz solo where um, you just do the jazz solo and it's done. Um, with animation, he said you could always go back and change it and improve it. It's always like a constant process of improvement. Um, on the detail which also ran him into dangerous waters when he's like constantly reanimating sequences and things like that yeah exactly how do you know when you're done yeah to him you could never really be done on a project like this which also probably is the reason it 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 didn't get completed Took 30 years yeah and took 30 years to kind of be completed and and sort of tied to that too is the pacing like um there's this one sequence that i always think about where um there's a soldier who survived the one-eyed army massacre and he's crawling to his horse and he's just mm-hmm. riddled with arrows and he has like a spear um cut through him and you know oh yeah there's there's even another soldier who i think is like secretly alive on the battlefield yeah. too watching him like oh uh oh mm. yeah ah and like it's just making little reactionary sounds the entire time as if just to say like what the fuck's going on and the soldier's crawling towards his horse in the slowest most painful way where you can feel every sort of iota of of his suffering and he gets onto the horse and even getting onto the horse seems like a herculean effort like he's just Mm -hmm. he's pulling at the saddle and the horse won't stand still and it's just there's so much struggle yeah there's so much struggle in the sequence and i think with richard williams like there was an animator that worked on the project who talked about it in the the documentary where he was like uh, richard williams saw that sequence and he instantly wanted it to be longer 
and he wanted to be longer and longer and longer because he loved it so much. Um, so that's his sort of perfectionism. And and yeah. and we'll sort of end the analysis portion here with Richard Williams as the teacher. So we briefly talked about him um, actually writing a textbook of animation called the Animator Survival Kit, which I had to buy when I took Animation 101 um, in college. And this is what he had to say as well about the project. And I think in his own words, this is sort of the most powerful part. Um, so this is what he had to say, quote, the thief, the thing with the thief that I'm just trying to do, uh, what they call a masterpiece. When you master a medium in the old days, if you were a master painter, then you did your masterpiece. Well, this is old fashioned, but I've mastered this medium at last and I'm going to do a masterpiece. I hope if I can ever, ever finish the thing. So kind of sad words from him knowing well, it wasn't finished, but you know. yeah, but I mean, even the unfinished product, I think, well, probably anyone who actually knows a thing or two about animation. I mean, I can look at it and say it's it looks incredible, but I don't know enough. I think anyone with a trained eye, such as yourself or any other uh, film critics out there, would say that yeah, he probably did just that. And and he always compared himself to Rembrandt. That's who he was reaching towards. That was like one of his artistic heroes. And I think I don't want to make a masterpiece sound pretentious. What he means by masterpiece is that. This is a film used to teach animators who are trying to get to the level that Richard Williams was and Ken Harris was and Art Babbitt was. You know, this is almost like a teaching tool, um, not just like mm -hmm. him being like, I am amazing. I'm a genius. I want to make this great film. He's like, no, this is like for you. A uh, uh, noble, selfless animator, if there ever was one. We are going to we're going to table it at that for the analysis and talk about what we're going to watch in our next episode which is a surprise to me too so i'm very excited so we're gonna watch a film called the rules of the game um which is by director jean renoir this might be the oldest film you've ever seen buddy uh when i don't it know out? so it's from 1939 1939 yep i didn't even know they had cameras back then i mean <laughs> this is something we tried to talk about last time cinema's been around since like the late 1800s so it just like doesn't connect with me does not connect <laughs> with me at all so this will be really exciting so it is it is a classique i should say uh -huh. um out of the three films we've watched if if you want to really impress a film studies person to be like oh i've seen a classique um the rules of the game would be that film um because it's it's sort of canonized in the history of cinema and jean renoir is an important sort of french director um yeah. Well, so if I ever go on a date with a film studies major, I'll know what to say. <laughs> so I, I love this film. This is to me one of the most perfect films I've ever seen where I don't think I would pluck out any scenes. Like it's one of the tightest films I've ever seen. It's like a Swiss watch. Um, and I've, I've talked a lot about it and written a lot about it in the past. And um, there, I'm sure there's like books written about this film um, in general, but um, you can find that on on amazon prime video i believe i'm sure it's also on like criterion channel and other things um i have it on a criterion dvd because i'm fancy oh well, look at you yeah i'll i'll, I'll yeah. look it up on either prime video or who knows maybe it's on youtube probably not um yeah but uh, you know uh if you guys want to get ahead of us and check that out before us so that way you can uh you can tell us all the ways that we've we've analyzed it wrong on the next episode <laughs> yeah and uh yeah, even though I've studied it in the school, I'm sure there's people out there who, who wanna, who wanna, wanna tear us down. Mm -hmm. No, there's not. We, you know, there's. Well, everybody's supportive in this community, so we're okay. So I mean, 
we've been ranting about this film for a long time. So that's been that's been the second episode of the Art House Drive In, um, the newest podcast from Split Tooth Media. Yeah, thanks for coming and, out and uh, and just you know taking a breather with us, learning a little bit about f- film history. And go follow Split Tooth on Twitter and on Facebook. Listen to Synesthesia's podcast. Go read all our articles. Go read my interviews if you if you want. I think they're pre- pretty dang good. Go just watch um, a fun movie. Just go watch a nice film. Go. We've, you know, we've got nowhere to go right now. Just just hunker down and watch some cool films. Just get yourself out there. Just you know, be no, yourself. No, don't get yourself out there. That's the whole point. It's the pandemic. <laughs> just, you know, just get crazy. Watch a film. Like that's like no one does that. No one does. So, yeah. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We we love you. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Whoever you are. Bye bye now. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Art House Drive-In and on Twitter at Art House Inn. That's right, we can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little car as we talk about films each week, give or take. Probably.